I see four brilliant men of faith who are helping their people understand how to live a quality life during turbulent times. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we believe big things can happen when ideas collide inside the bonds of mutual respect. We're building the town hall of the 21st century across the partisan divide. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. When most separate, we gather across color, creed, and ideology. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is your host, Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for a God Squad program called True Believers, the Ascendant Religion of Our Political Extremes. This is one of our new season programs that just took place recently, and I got to tell you, I really needed this program more than I even realized. To demonstrate that, here's a quick little behind-the-scenes podcast moment. As I work on these episodes, part of my process is to flag my most favorite quotes so I can pick one for the beginning and for other promotional uses. Well, after I got done with this episode, I had flagged over 20 favorite quotes. I mean, how is anybody even supposed to choose from that? So as I said, I clearly needed this program myself, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. This God Squad program included a panel of five who will introduce themselves in just a minute, and it was moderated by Father Tim Holita of St. Thomas More Co-Cathedral. During the event, Village Square's CEO and founder, Liz Joyner, gave a really quick introduction of the program, and I loved what she said. So let's let her introduce the program today before we turn things over to Father Tim. Here's Liz. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Liz Joyner. I'm the founder and CEO of The Village Square, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to True Believers. Uh, It is really good to be with the God Squad family again uh, today from across the political spectrum at a challenging time like now. And I really believe this conversation we're having today is one of the most important ones we could possibly have. It's really important to me because as someone who's worked to build bridges across the divide, it feels like the laws of physics are taking over where extreme reactions on one side propel extreme on the other, and then we're kind of stuck in the middle in between the, the ascending anger. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to turn the program over to Father Tim Holita of St. Thomas More Co-Cathedral. Tim. Thanks, Liz. Um, and hello, everybody. Welcome, all those who are uh, joining us today through the internet and through Zoom. Fortunately, still having to meet this way, but but also grateful that we're able to. As much as I'm a critic, I know, of technology, I've had to eat a lot of humble pie the last several months as we transition to mostly online things here at our church and our ministry. So today we're, we're talking about, I'll read the topic description for you, everybody here, True Believers, the ascendant religion of our political extremes. America's hardcore polar political opposites seem to have something striking in common. They evoke a blind, unquestioning faith that feels like religion run amok, each complete with original sin, rituals, and dogma, and notably many swift excommunications. Conversation predicted to include whining about social media. Absolutely. So we're going to be talking a bit today about how our politics have gotten maybe a little bit fanatical, maybe is a good word for it. I want to first introduce everybody on our panel. First off, I'm Father Tim, of course, from St. Thomas More, the Cathedral of St. Thomas More by FSU. And going ahead, Dr. Lesham. Hello, my name is Dan Lesham. I am the Executive Director of Hillel at Florida State University, and I am a scholar of Holocaust and anti-Semitism. And uh, Dr. Casterly. Hi, my name is Audrey Casserly. I specialize in terrorism at the Emergency Management and Homeland Security Program at Florida State University. Pastor Schultz. 
My name is Gary Schultz, and I'm the senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Tallahassee. Pastor Davis? Um, my name is Joseph Davis. I am the senior pastor of Truth Gathers Dream Center in Tallahassee and overseer of Victorious Church in Monticello, Florida. All right. Welcome to all of you. So I'll be, I'll be honest. I'll confess that I get a little nervous when I have to moderate, and I'm like always afraid. But I think in this case, it's going to be easy. As long as we have a good topic, and great people with lots of input. I think we'll be just fine. I'm always nervous. Like, what are we going to, what if we run out of things to talk about? But I don't think we'll have that trouble this time. So we're talking about our politics and how, at least from my observation, it's become, it's, it's amazing. This past election, I received pressure in my email box, mainly from different parishioners. I'm a very diverse parish. And I guess it's good that everybody seems to be fooled as to where I stand. It's kind of where I want to be. Um, but I would get emails pressuring me to, attack one candidate or the other because it was my duty to as a Catholic priest. So it's very fascinating how our faith and our politics are almost getting mixed together or that politics is supplanting our faith. And what we're seeing is a sort of, as, as we said in our, in our topic description here, that a blind, unquestioning faith, right? People are unable to see the other side. Uh, we see all this polarization. So I just want to ask each of you, and we can just chime in, uh, I'm not going to call on you. I don't think I'll just let you all chime in and see how that works. What do you think? How is this? How is this coming about? Why? What is it different? First off, from what it's been in the past, it feels like it in my lifetime. And and what do you think are the causes? You know, and not not just blaming candidates, but what are the deeper things going on in our society that's kind of led to this environment? I can start. You know, before the panel started, Father Tim was talking about how you know this is very cyclical. We see a great deal of passion around many candidates. And uh, one of the things I've sort of noticed is that when we talk about the individual identity in America, our identity is quite often tied up in the idea of our governance, right? In the idea of a democracy. And so when we put ourselves behind a candidate, we've invested who we are as an ego into those candidates. And so when those candidates succeed, it becomes our successes. And when those candidates fail, it becomes our failures. So a lot of times the passion that we have for governance is really part of the American identity, right? This commitment to democracy. And so it's natural that there should be extreme passion because it's an ego-tied idea to how we run the country. Dr. Leshem, did you want to say something? Sure, I could chime in uh, as by way of introduction. I think that one of the things I notice, and we work mostly here with students from across the state and across the country, mostly on questions of their budding Jewish identity. And to the extent that Judaism as a religious community spans questions of religion all the way to culture and to family and tradition and, and a bunch of other gradients in between, I think that there are some signs of the times, if you want to call it that, and the, the ways the students relate to themselves and each other that I think are unique and that might speak to some of these concerns. And I think that part of it that no one has yet mentioned is the dependence of our identity on kind of tribal identities. And I find with the divisions we're seeing in our country right now, you know, a handyman came to our house to help us out with something. And he said, oh my God, Dan, you're not a, you know, a Democrat in this instance, hoping that I wasn't because that would mean a whole range of connotations and associations for him that he did not want to reconcile with how he feels about me or has felt about me up until that point. And so a lot of times we see in our students in a different way, whether they come or not, they, they have an idea of what a Jewish identity, for instance, is. And it comes with a whole host of associations, maybe political, maybe especially political when we have conversations about Israel. But it's a whole range of assumptions that they believe is kind of imputed onto those different identities. And as we, as a society, have more and more and more identities, and yet each one of them is more and more isolated from each other and from, our, from, from the other identities that we hold, I think it breeds a kind of confusion about what do I care about and who am I? And we tend to rely on these kind of tropes or uh, heuristics to guide us through what's a really a complicated time to be alive right now, to be a sentient being, to try to make choices. And I think that social media and how we get our news and how we talk about news and how we talk to each other about what's happening in the world puts extra strain and makes those kinds of distinctions and ideas even more difficult to ascertain 
And so all the more tempting to stick by simple answers. And to build on those things, I'm always struck by the phrase that a political scientist, Christopher Freeman, used the monopolization of our identity by politics. And that, that tribalism, I think we so often see it, it's, it's not, all right, I'm, I'm all together with these people, but it becomes an us versus them. And it quickly devolves into, I find my identity in how I'm different from them. You, know, you mentioned the, the idea of how, well, I hear somebody is a Democrat and all these connotations automatically arise. And I think we have this, this increasing identity that we set ourselves off against others. And so no longer is politics a, a conversation about how we can cooperate and compromise and solve civic problems. Instead, it's a matter of, well, this is who I am and this is who you are. And we no longer want to see discussion. We no longer want to see cooperation. What we want to see is, is domination. You know, we, we increasingly think in politics, not just in practical terms, but but moral terms, as that becomes part of our identity. And so I'm right, I'm good, and those who disagree are wrong and, and evil. I think this is absolutely increasing as we continually put politics as, as ultimate and make that the center of who we are. I would, I would agree with Gary. I think there's a bit of a rise of extremism. And uh, along with that extremism, we see a lot of broad conclusions and we see a lot of moral absolutes. And again, I want to go back to the idea of self. You know, the, the self is so tied up sometimes in these grandiose aims that the self is no longer a single individual that's looking at themselves. It's like Dan said, you know, what does it mean to be Jewish? But I don't think students are necessarily asking, what does it mean to be me, right? They're looking to these larger organizational institutions that are so sweeping, and, and some of them are relatively extreme in their approach, to, to fill that identity void for them, you know, almost like a subscription plan. Oh, you know, I'm X, therefore I believe all these ideas. I do think that we're not encouraging the individual at a young age to really push back against what it means to have self-love. You know, what does, it, what does your identity mean? What do you love? Not what people have told you to love. What do you love? Joe, you want to add anything? Oh, sure. I think this is a time we've never seen. And so you still can't ignore societal factors of what's happening right now with COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, and the effects of that. You can't ignore some of the social outrage and how all of that put together with identity came a part of this election, a part of these political extremes. Um, never before have I seen an election where the two main candidates, we would say, the whole idea was to separate them, to say they're totally different from one another. Normally you find candidates who we believe have similarities and we're only picking a few things that we like about one versus the other. But one of the goals and one of the spins of, I think this season, was to separate them as far from each other so that when people made their choices, they also began to become extreme. So much so, specifically in the Christian faith, some of the things that I was combating with extremism was that you can't be a Democrat and be Christian. And so that was some of the extreme rhetoric, for example, and maybe on the other side as well, so I'm not trying to be biased, but one of the things I was doing a lot of combating with were people who say it's impossible to be Christian and democratic. And so, because if you're Christian, you must be Republican. And so with that level of extreme, people begin to fight for their faith and fight for what they believe gives them a stance to be democratic. And I've never seen an election that made people uh, stand up and protect who they are in the faith, never. I've never seen so much arguments and uh, things of that nature from a Christian and faith perspective. I, th I think this is part of, for me at least, I, I see this as a, an ideology. We've seen the faith and, and our, our politics kind of joining. And I, and I think this is becoming dangerous because we know we've seen in our history in recent years, the danger of kind of a religious fanaticism 
and I, and again, I'm I'm a Catholic priest, so I've given my life to my faith. I believe it's true. So you could call me a fanatic in one way, but I mean a fanaticism that becomes this sort of winner take all zero sum game uh, that can lead to violence and so on, and, and to see others as my enemy or my mortal enemy. We begin to see this strange kind of melding, especially in my in our Catholic faith. We're very very strong on on some certain social issues. I mean, one of them being the life. Uh, the issue of life, um, abortion, death penalty, uh, euthanasia, embryonic research, so on. Very strong on that, but also strong on other issues. And some have identified and isolated the life issue as as, as the only one, and, and only looking as if, if a politician checks off on pro-life, then they're absolutely, they're okay. Almost nothing else is looked at. And I think, unfortunately, what I've seen is the Democratic Party seems now to desire kind of an ideologically pure politician to represent them that that's has to be pro-choice and i think what's what's a sad state for us is that for those who, who are very committed to life that voice of the democratic party whatever it offers its perspective on how, whatever their policy is and their platform is now being drowned out because of this life issue so almost almost in response to a sort of of a pro-life movement is now sort of a, we have to combat this by being completely pro-choice if that makes sense so i think in that way it's sort of the, even our the faith is kind of being influencing the politics in this way and what i think the danger is and i hope you can comment on this is kind of building off of what audrey said we're looking for meaning and i feel like our society with its emphasis on on media and distraction social media and so on the isolation is, as joe brought out maybe brought up exacerbated by covid19 we're looking for something and politics gives us a sense, even if it's as simple as checking who I'm going to vote for, it gives me a sense of control. It gives me a sense of being able to influence and mold the world into my liking. Um, and this becomes of extreme importance. I think I read recently, I brought this up in a homily that somebody after president Trump lost, she, she reported that she cried in her husband's arm for several hours and wept and said, it's over. It's over. And she said, this has been the worst four years of my life. And I, I, with all respect, her, I would say, you have to get a life. I mean, if this is what your life has been, is what somebody in the White House has been doing or saying, there's something really, there's something very disturbing about that. And I know as a, as a pastor, one of the things that I've been really trying to do during this season is to help a congregation see what, what truly is ultimate. You know, politics is important no doubt you know, how we relate as a society as a culture with one another but what is what is ultimate and and as as a christian we know that we're commanded to love our enemies to pray for those who persecute us to do good even to those we think are doing evil and when we when we remember whose we are what what we truly ought to be about that ought to inform everything else that we're doing, but it, it's easy to lose that perspective for all kinds of reasons. You know, it's, it's very interesting, your story too, Tim, because, you know, I think of faith as an object love, right? Something that you love that's part of your identity, an external component that informs who you are, but is also your love. And in your story, I almost feel like there's a, a schism in the object love of your congregant, right? Where she is got her faith as a guiding force, but the politics have been so maybe antithesis to her object love that the relief is overwhelming that she no longer has to face that struggle between what her faith teaches her and perhaps what the leadership is doing. So I, I want to, um, there's a quote here from Hannah Arendt, I think I'm saying her name correct, that uh, it was an article that Liz Joyner sent me, and I just want to read this little quote. She's talking about totalitarianism and how isolation or loneliness can lead to that. And she says, she says this, just as terror, even in its pre-total, merely tyrannical form ruins all relationships between men. So the self-compulsion of ideological thinking, and I, and I want to explain that ideological thinking is being this sort of meta-narrative that we all sort of believe in or explains everything in our world and so on. And that in politics now is kind of wedded into that. So this ideological thinking ruins all relationships with reality. 
The preparation has succeeded when people have lost contact with their fellow men, as well as the reality around them. For together with these contacts, men lose the capacity of both experience and thought. The ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, the reality of experience, and the distinction between true and false, the standards of thought, no longer exist. I think that's a great I mean, that kind of sums it up. I mean, what we're seeing here, I, and I, I'm not going to, I don't want to pick on her, but I just remember last time we met Betsy, uh, was sharing a story and, and she, I very humble, shared a story about uh, Pastor Betsy, about she was waiting in line at the zoo. And she said there was lots of people around her who clearly disagreed with her political standings. And she was surprised that they were nice and friendly and welcoming and so on. And I think, again, this is maybe part of the issue. And that's, I kind of want to lead into this and Perhaps your own commentary on what I just read to you, but also what can we do as as faith leaders ourselves personally? Because I'm not immune to this temptation to kind of fall into this ideological thinking or to start thinking of, of people who disagree with me as my enemies. I'm not immune from that. And how? What can I do? What can you do personally, but also as as leaders in our community to kind of help help this situation to help us to to not to not fall into this sort of thinking. Well, if I could jump in for just a second. It's interesting. I think that as we start to look around our society and say, in, uh, on the one hand, it's it's great that more people are involved in politics, and you know, we I think that we're going to see that we had really high, record high turnouts for ele- the election, for instance, and that has a really positive aspect to it, and this kind of an ideal that democracy works the more people are participating in it. But at the same time, there's this sense of to go back to the theme of social media and how we communicate and how we gather our information these days that we all find ourselves in more and more refined echo chambers as we carefully follow and unfollow people who kind of violate our own sense of what's right and what's wrong and I don't want to hear this much disagreement or I don't want to hear that perspective anymore. We have, especially with coronavirus, but even before, you know, we we don't talk politics on the bus, we don't overhear conversations, we're, we're a lot more siloed. And I think that what that tends to do is each of us is, can come to feel very self-satisfied that I have the most refined thoughts on topic X of anyone in my echo chamber. And therefore I have, you know, I'm the, the highest and the best example from amongst the people I ever hear from of this one thing that I represent very clearly. And I see it, you know, we were talking about the othering, but one of the interesting things for me as a non-Catholic was to see the conversations about Joe Biden being Catholic or not, or can a Catholic support Joe Biden, who is a Catholic? And in my own community, there was, you know, to my mind, one of our great and most powerful and important rabbis, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief rabbi of the UK for many years, passed away a week ago. And looking within my own community at how he was viewed in kind of obituaries by people on the far right or end of the spectrum and to people far left of the spectrum, how even people that are within our community aren't pure enough for many of us, and they don't represent my way of being that way. So what chance do we have to view people across the spectrum as people who could possibly be like me and who are therefore deserving of the kind of penumbra of my good graces and my thought and my care and my love? And I think that the world of people that we could possibly love is getting so, so, so small, especially for my students that even before coronavirus, so much, such a greater percentage of their total social interactions are moving onto devices and away from other individuals, that this need, it's like the direct inverse. Every minute I spend on my phone is another minute that I really wish I was spending with a person, and yet I keep spending more and more minutes in this way. And so I think that the, the, the trend lines all point to greater isolation and greater extremism if, you know, in this path that we've been on. Yeah, one thing that I've, it's been very helpful for me, and I'm, I'm very blessed that I have a, a parish that's very diverse, and the one I came from before this was very diverse. It can be very helpful for me to keep me grounded, but I also just have a lot of friendships with people of very different backgrounds and different political positions, and that's been a very big help for me, and, and I find that the people who are most extreme and the most radical or the ones who are pressuring me the most or have a particular mindset, they're not friends with those who disagree with them. And they're not friends with, they don't have any of those contacts. Because again, when we are in the presence of another human being, uh, when you see their face, 
I want to say, I think it was Rabbi uh, Levinas. I think he was a rabbi, wasn't he, Dan? No, he wasn't a rabbi. No, but he was he was an important scholar. But he was he was also a teacher of Jewish of Jewish thought as well. Okay, I remember he was Jewish. I don't remember if he was a rabbi or not. But just that it's in the face of the other it, that morality or ethics begins when the face of the other is crushed, is what he said. And meaning, like when we see another human being's hurt, we see another human being as as a human being as one like us. Um, it's a lot easier to make the jump and say, well, maybe this person's come to these conclusions in a different way than I have, or maybe they see things differently. Maybe there's something I can learn here, and maybe they're not my enemy. They're not my mortal enemy. They're not an existential threat or something, but maybe there's something here, uh, a voice that I need to listen to. Maybe not agree. We don't have to be wishy-washy. We can have strong convictions, but that maybe there's something here for me that can help me. So I... I wonder how we as, as clergy and people can, can encourage yeah, <laughs> others to, to, to expose themselves to other viewpoints. Or I, I don't, I'm not really sure of it, but anybody has any ideas about that. So my whole thing is looking at the concept of the self with, through the lens of self-esteem. I, I see sometimes in people who are exhibiting this almost rage, right? What I would call narcissistic rage where changes in the environment actually seem to have affected them personally, right? So where politics is actually uh, a hit against their self-esteem. And I think part of the problem is, is that people have willingly tied their self-esteem and their sense of self and their sense of worth to whatever they perceive to be omnipotent that's going to pull with them. And I think that what we're not doing enough of is is encouraging people to have strong senses of self that are internal as opposed to externally influenced, right? Having the self identified through the lens of the individual as opposed to their affiliations with either a political group or a movement. I think sometimes we're doing a disservice by not letting people be intrinsically more, more, custom, more unique. It's interesting, Audrey, the way you describe that. I was thinking of this quote by Rabbi Sachs as you were speaking, where he said, made the exact opposite point. <laughs> but I think that they actually say the same thing, that to have a fully articulated sense of who you are, it's, it's a different pursuit than what we commonly do, which is to get smaller and smaller. What am I really? What am I really? What am I really? Oh, I'm this one thing. This is me. But that in fact, to figure out what you are and what, you, what has meaning for you, you have to expose yourself to as many different things as possible. The dive into the self-discovery isn't just a dive inside, right? This isn't, it's not that, you know, this, this old idea that everything there is to know is, is found inside me. Quite the opposite. I'm, I only contain what I've been exposed to as a possibility. So that the condition of possibility of being truly me depends on being myself truly other and allowing that voice, as Father Tim was saying, quoting Levinas, that allowing myself, Levinas called it the habitual economy of being, um, which is another name for like this ego voice of I, 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 I know who I am, I know what I am, I am me and I like this. And he said, allow that, which isn't necessarily just a conscious thing you can do, but imagine the possibility of allowing that habitual voice to be interrupted by something else, by anything else. And that, that it's in those interruptions that we have the possibility to take in something new and become something new, right? I think that one of the things I really love about religion, uh, especially as it's taught within the Jewish tradition is that we're not, we're not there yet, right? It's not, it's not a negative theology, but it's, it's a process and it's a discovery and it's an unfolding. And it can't just be you in your, in your isolation that there are, you know, according to one Hasidic teaching, the, the, the sparks of the divine are in every person and in every object, and you've got to go collecting. You're not going to get that enlightenment the way, I guess, maybe it worked for the Buddha of sitting under the tree for 20 years. So I think that sometimes when we say going into yourself, we, it's, it's really saying perhaps try radically going into others. Make space for both. Sure, absolutely. I love it. I love all that. My concern, my only concern right now is that we seem to have lost that sense of challenging exploration with other humans. 
right? For some reason, people seem so willing to just ascribe to somebody else's philosophy without actually engaging. And I don't know if it's because it's safer. Like you said, these echo chambers allow you to become a master of a small universe. But we seem to have lost that idea that conflict between humans can enrich us, right? That, that talking and discussing can create new ideas and new concepts of self and new, new ideas of how we approach the world. And, and it's true that it seems like we're very limited in how much we're willing to safely engage with each other in conflicting ideas. And I, I don't know if that's because, like Pastor Davis said, you know, the coronavirus has made us very isolated. I don't know if it's, it's pointed out huge inequalities that we're not ready to talk about. But it does seem that we seem to have lost that dialogue a bit. Yeah, I agree. One of the challenges that I saw for my own self is I didn't have enough respect for different views, but I wanted to have greater respect for different views. Although I felt some were maybe a little extreme or whatever it was. So I start what I call peeking across the fence and actually start subscribing to other news medias that I formerly was not. I had to understand some backgrounds, some things that were more important for them to try to find where we are more alike than different. And that was a journey. And I'm not saying it was easy. I've had some very tough conversations over the last couple of weeks. And I'll tell you, it, it, takes, it takes a while to get to that middle ground. And, and if you don't quit, because a few times I did, there may be some insults hurled at you and things of that nature. But I'm telling you, I felt like, why don't I understand certain people right now? Why are we so different? And that extreme made me engage. And so when you talk about that self-identity, and that's what I found out, you know, that people's identity was so tied up in who they were voting for, to separate them from that was very difficult. And to say that um, you were going to uh, still have your life or or whatever it was, I couldn't find what the threat was. And that, many times when people start to really defend very strongly, you have to find out what the threat is, what is at stake here. And I was trying to dig and dig, but the engagement necessary to bring some level of harmony, unity, and get more in the middle, I found a, a great challenge. But I, I'm willing to take on that, that challenge. And I think that's something, to, Joe, to build on what you said, that as pastors and faith leaders, we have to consciously model. Because what, what is the church supposed to be? The church is supposed to be this diverse group of people from all backgrounds coming together around a shared truth and experience of, of Jesus Christ. And of course, that's Christianity, but also that's true of other faith communities. We, we should not be an echo chamber. And that means that as leaders of those communities, we have to consciously model that. I, I joke sometimes with people, you know, I, I make sure I read the, the Atlantic and the National Review or the Washington Post and the Washington Examiner. We, we need to expose ourselves to that. We need to encourage people to have face-to-face conversations and develop relationships. And certainly that's, that's harder right now because of everything we're going through. It, it, it's only exacerbated by the pandemic that we're in. And I think that does contribute to it. But as much as we can, to know that, that social media is not always the, the best place for those things. Uh, to encourage people, the largest consumer the source of news for people uh, in our current day and age is, is Facebook. But Facebook isn't a news organization. You know, Facebook is designed to only have you hear people you want to engage with. And so consciously trying to encourage people and model, you know, we, we've got to be willing to talk, to listen, to try to understand even those we disagree with. If, if I may too, I think about extremism a lot. You know, you guys are coming from very, very different perspective than I am. Usually when I'm looking at, at people who are conducting violence in the name of something, they are outliers, right? They are not necessarily mainstream members of society. But I do see some of those extremist behaviors, predominantly the idea that self is so tied to something external, be it faith 
and you know, if we look at the attacks in France, you know, where an insult on the faith becomes an insult on the self, right? And that, that those two are irrevocably linked. And therefore, you know, an attack on the faith requires action by the self. I, I do see some of that sometimes in the far right movements in the United States, you know, where the idea of self is so tied up in conservative ideology or conservative politics that to even attack it is to attack the self and to even change the institutions is enough to warrant damage to the individual, to the, the own individual's idea of who they are and what they should do to either defend their faith or defend their country. And I think our issue is to, to just continue these dialogues to ideally pull people back from the edge of that extremist ideology where there is no alternative. But we also need to recognize that incredible link to the individual where you know damage to a system or damage to the economy or damage to religion is a personal hit on some of these people and we need to respect that you know i mean i i, I do think that's part of the challenge moving forward is how do we de-escalate some of this rage that we're seeing that is tied up with who people are and how they feel attacked so i i don't want to downplay any of any of the issues that are at hand because they are, they are important. And I, I actually preached about this this past Sunday to my parishioners. I came across so many people over the weekend who were just absolutely devastated by the loss of the president and the election. And and I mean, I'm okay for it's fine for people to be sad. I mean, I'm I'm sad when the Seminoles lose too, you know. But I also don't let it change my whole life. I'm not saying that the presidential election is the same as the Florida State football game. But in reality of my concrete life, it's not that different. And in some ways, you could maybe even argue FSU football has a greater impact because it's local and affects people I actually know and, and some who go to my church. So there was a, a saying that a professor in seminary used to say that the seminaries, the battles in the seminary are so fierce because there's nothing to fight for. And so in this small community, these battles over like the most like looking back, it's like, why are we so passionate and angered over this? You're fighting so much for this something so silly it's because there was not much to fight for there was this was our life right and i think with the with something we can do to contribute to the toning down is is trying to help people see what really is important and what i mean by that is i gave him my homily uh, i gave him a description of my entire day this past friday literally from when i woke up until when i went to bed it was very interesting believe me everybody was on the edge of their seats and after, at the end of it, though, what I try to point out to him is you didn't hear me mention President Trump or Biden in the entire day. And if I went over the last four years, you wouldn't hear me mention them in my day because it really doesn't affect me that much concretely. Again, not to say that these things aren't important because they are and that we should contribute, we should be engaged civically. But to make this my whole life or to allow my attitude and my, my well-being and how my life is going and so on to be determined by these things. Like, to, to why why do we even believe that? And I, I have to suggest, I think it's the media. Um, the media normalizes things. It makes things seem like it's in my backyard when it may not be. And I think we also have a duty to sort of, to create more community and engagement and society and relationships outside of these these experiences of, of, of watching the news, following Twitter, and allowing that to kind of dominate and be the shape, the thing that shapes my worldview, the thing that shapes my life. And I think we all attest to that. When I read certain things on the internet, I, I sometimes find myself getting angry or anxious or stressed or depressed, uh, very rarely encouraged or uplifted, right? And that's always a sign for me that I need to pull back and take a step away. I want to I want to just turn to some questions. We've gotten several here. Um, I do want to point out, one. somebody had a comment about not welcoming people into their, their community if they spread lies or disagreements and so on, which I think is an interesting point. I do want to point out something that I've always held to, which is that truth has nothing to fear from error. Um, and that we don't have to be afraid of, of people who believe silly things necessarily. We, there's a way to persuade people if we have the truth and the truth can shine. Um, and so not to be afraid of those who disagree with us, not to exclude them from our groups or society, even if they have kind of conspiracy theories or whatever, but rather, you know, it takes a, a bravery to kind of to courageously engage that to dismantle that, to help persuade somebody who's different. 
So somebody here asked this question, being lukewarm on issues is easy and conducive to conversation, but not progress. How do we hold firmly to deep convictions and still have productive conversation with those who don't see or experience the same pain and evil in the world that we do? Then want to tackle that? Well, empathy is, empathy is a difficult trait. You know, I mean, empathy requires very active listening. It can be very difficult to to empathize with people who experience things differently from you. But I would definitely say that's that's one of the first steps in trying to understand is to empathize. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that talking to so many of my friends who have just like tuned out of Facebook, which is something I never really tuned into, but I, I follow Twitter and a few other things. And I think that we see what what nowadays we call a political disagreement or argument or discussion uh, if it takes place on Facebook and it's a series of posts that are, you know, explosive, that's not a discussion. And I think that on some level, we we have forgotten. I don't know. That's kind of a nostalgic view. Maybe we never knew it that well. But I think that we rarely find ourselves in conversation, in serious conversation and engagement with people who think differently from us. And I know for myself here at Hillel, I try to create, and sometimes it has to be a bit artificial, the context in which people might find themselves across the table from someone who disagrees with them. And I think it's something that can be taught and something that can be learned. Empathy is difficult, of course, but it can also be strengthened. It's like a muscle like that we don't use very much. And I think that a lot of the time when we think we're having discussion, we're not. And learning how to connect to the experience of another person and how to truly hear that, it's transformative and is not about changing their view, not about making them think what I think. So I wish that there were, you know, this kind of emotional intelligence. And I hear, my kids are in young primary school, I hear that they're starting to teach students more about mindfulness and emotional intelligence. I hope that that's true. And I hope that my kids get that kind of training in there as well. I think that we are... It's like if they could put it in our water, that would be awesome because that we seem to get vitamins that way. Um, but I don't know how, how else we change our society to bring back that, that, that as a value. I think building on that, we need to see our conversations as an opportunity to, to engage and love other people, not as opportunities to dominate and win. You know, Audrey mentioned how easy it is for us to kind of conflate our, our views with our sense of self, and therefore when our views are attacked, we, we feel that we're attacked. And that does go back to an issue of, of identity, and of course as a Christian, seeing that there's, there's a lot more ultimate than, than what is going on right here in the here and now. But I think we need to learn to see each other as, as people, and what is the goal of this conversation? Because if we go into a conversation just looking to convince win, change someone's minds, which is what avenues like Facebook tend to, to encourage, that very rarely, if ever, happens. It's kind of become a joke. Uh, this, we, we know this conversation isn't going to change anyone's mind. Well, then what's the point of the conversation? And, and there, ought, there ought to be a deeper level of engagement. There has to be than just simply trying to say, well, you're wrong. I'm right. Let me tell you why. Um, yeah, this is, we have lots, lots of questions pouring in. Some a little bit upset about some of the things I've said recently. I just want to let me just stress that I did not say that the elections are silly or I hope I didn't give that impression. They do have consequences for people and they are important, as I said, and that we should all engage in them. I just want to make sure that's clear. I vote. I've paid a lot of attention to politics. I care about it. But I just personally and I don't know a lot of people who are absolutely devastated and depressed at the election that it's affected them directly. There, I'm sure there are people who are, I was, I was activated when we invaded Iraq when I was in the reserve said affected me uh, pretty directly and a lot of other people. So I do recognize that. I just want to point that out. So yeah, I, but I do want to just point out, maybe, maybe we suggested, maybe we're putting too much emphasis on it and not enough on what's going on in our own local individual lives and our own community. So someone here, gosh, there's a lot of questions. This is great. So someone asked this question. Actually, these are kind of similar. Someone asked here about, about abortion. You know, how do you compromise on, on something like abortion when someone believes that, that killing babies is always wrong? A position that I would hold. You know, how do you compromise uh, with somebody like that? How, do you, how can a compromise be achieved with someone who disagrees and somebody else very similar 
kind of say more about having those difficult conversations when there is no agreed upon field of truth. So how do we kind of mold those? I mean, you have, and it seems like a, a abortion issue. How do you compromise on that? But then also, let me just, let me just, I don't think, I don't like the word compromise because why do you have to compromise anything? Right. I mean, why can't we just agree to disagree on a perspective? Right. I don't know that we need to have a national consensus on every issue. I don't think, you know, homogeneity is the goal here. The goal really is respect and discourse and, you know, the idea of supporting systems that allow people to select their own governance. I mean, there's no, there's no effort for, how do I say this? Changing people's minds. You don't have to change someone's minds. It's more about the idea of respecting the fact that there may be differences. Right. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. And I, yeah, I would think that's, that's right on. We don't necessarily have to compromise. Uh, we can also agree to disagree. So how do we find though, this one person said, say more about having those difficult conversations when there is no agreed upon field of truth. How do we find an agreed upon field of truth to have a conversation on? Where does that begin? I want to hear what Pastor Davis has to say, because he made the effort to walk onto the other side of the fence. Would you call it peeking onto the other side of the fence? So what do you, how did, what was your experience with finding common truth? It was challenging and trying to, first of all, establish a basis of, I have both conservative and liberal views. And so what happens again is if you voted conservative or voted liberal, there was this rhetoric or this extremism that you had to be one or the other, it's, or rather just a mixture and just picking what you feel is best at the moment. And so I wanted to be able to articulate that where I voted, but I also had some other views that I agreed with from the other party. And I wasn't just one and not the other. And even though I had to make a choice to vote, I had some other respects and feelings. And so I wasn't immediately welcomed in from the other side because they assume I, I didn't vote for their person. And they also assume I didn't have some of the thoughts or beliefs that they stood for. So I was considered to be an outside and to break down that conversation was very extreme. I mean, I'll go to the worst experience throughout. And again, this is social media exchange. This is not conversation. This is not face-to-face. It is very difficult. You must be patient. You must be quiet. You must know who you are. We talk about the self-identity. If I didn't know who I am, who I feel like I'm learning, involving, but I knew who I am, someone called me that you are Satan. You are the child of Satan, you know? And I said, guy, it, I, I'm, I'm solid. I know who I am. But you don't know me. I don't know you. And that's why I'm respecting you. But you don't know me. So I'm not, my emotions are not angry. But I'm telling you to slow a conversation down, to peek across the fence, to ask questions that drill down into humanity, feelings, respect, experiences, background, takes time. And the average conversation on social media does not cater to that. And we get caught up in spins, quick sayings, slogans, and all those things, and we never have real engagement. And I think that's what's missing. And so we're never going to have a field of truth if we don't slow down conversation. And the other thing that I would add in is that clearly there, how do we put this? It it's can be very difficult to find a field of common truth, as the questioner put it. Obviously, in some discussions, it just won't happen. You know, I studied Holocaust denial for a long time. And most people who engage in Holocaust denial know that what they're engaging in is a kind of sleight of hand and a conspiracy theory, and it's designed to attack Jews. So you can never have a conversation about the facts of the Holocaust because that's not really what they're talking about. They're manipulating the facts in order to achieve something else. So that happens in conversation too. But on questions like abortion, and I think that all the people in this group have the luxury of having a platform and a context that isn't about a single issue. And so, you know, I'm teaching this with this group of students right now online. We meet eight times over the course of the semester. It's called the Jewish Learning Fellowship. And we have students from all over the political perspective. But if you sit down with a bit of text from the Torah, you're reading a few lines of verse, and you're talking about how those passages hit you and how they affect you. We're not talking about as you said, Father Tim, we're not mentioning the word Trump. We're not talking about the word Biden. We're not talking about the word abortion. We're agreeing 
to hear each other's perspectives and what that says about who we are as people and how we shape meaning out of the world around us. And, you know, if in the course of those conversations, we get around to more difficult or touchy or hot button topics, I trust that by that point, we've gotten to know each other enough that we're allowing each other the flexibility of, uh, you know, sharing a perspective without excommunication, as you had mentioned at the top, like that that's not the stakes in the conversation anymore. And so I, I do think that we're all in context where the people that are coming to us share something beyond a single viewpoint on a single political issue and that encouraging them to start from either where they agree or where they're ignorant like just let's let's all learn something together and from there build towards other kinds of conversations and i think that through that i think that you know we're craving meaning sure but we're really also craving connection and we're desperate for it and that in exchange for connection we allow each other a great amount of flexibility and difference but we get frustrated easily that we're not going to get connection when we start with our things that make it us different and we want out of the conversation and we want something else something less valuable than connection like domination which also gives us something it's just not anything nearly as good well i think i think there's one of the questions was how can we i think kind of similar to what we've already asked but how can we encourage or how do we help our 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 parishes, our congregations, there's someone here, how do you heal your community? Um, how do we encourage our, our people to be healed, turn back to God? What, what strategies have you as faith leaders implemented to try to promote healing community within your congregation so people can heal? I have to say, I mean, it is kind of joking, but kind of not. If I was the, the king of the world, I would, I would have a huge switch, you know, and it would turn off the internet and television for several hours a day in the evenings, perhaps. And people would come home and they would be really angry at me at first. They'd be so bored. Like, what am I going to do? But then they would have to do what we do during hurricanes. They would go outside. They would barbecue. They would spend time with their neighbors. They would get to know each other. And I, I really, really, really try to encourage folks to, to get to know your neighbors. If you don't know your neighbors, that's a problem. And I guarantee your neighbors are probably not believing the same things as you, having the same political viewpoints, having the same religion perhaps different race, different background and different struggles. And, and if we don't get to know each other and if you, we have to spend time with one another. And I think that's, I want to encourage my the people in my church to do that. Encourage everybody to do that. We have to get to know each other again in a community. We have to live together and we have to find a way to live together. And that means disagreeing. It means agreeing, but it means trying to respect one another because we have to live together. It's like if you would under the same house, um, but if we isolate ourselves, then yeah, it becomes tribalism, it becomes factions, it becomes fighting against one another. If we have a few moments left, I just want to, does anybody have any closing thoughts, uh, especially about encouraging people or what, what can we do or ideas of how to, I love how Joe, you talked about going and experiencing uh, what other people's viewpoints were. Does anyone have any other kind of commentary on that or encouragement or strategies or something we can do? Well, you know, from from my perspective, I see four brilliant men of faith who are helping their people understand how to live a quality life during turbulent times. And, you know, politics is a process. It's going to be with us forever. And I think that your faith can be a constant, a constant, more of a support, something that's throughout your life that maybe doesn't change with the vitriol or the randomness that politics does. So I think you have a real opportunity here to tell people, you know, it's, it's a long process. You're going to be alive in governance your whole life. You know, take a beat, prioritize, think about things that maybe are more, of, more reflective of who you want to be. And sometimes the greatest political statement we can make is to focus on these things, even as the, the vitriol around us rages, to focus on what's, what's most important, to remember that, that every person you see matters to God, is made in, in his image. And how we treat that person is fundamental to who we are supposed to be, and as a Christian, who I believe we're supposed to be in, in Jesus Christ. And that matters more than whether or not they agree with you politically. Yeah, and I would just echo that. I mean, my, my faith as a Christian is that that God became a human being. And and so I look at, that's incredibly important to me, um, that every human being, 
no matter what color or, or anything about them is they're they're infinitely valuable to me and i think every every human being from a baby in the womb to someone on the on the very end of their life you know 110 years old is worth more than the entire universe and deserves that sort of dignity and respect and, and so if, if i approach human beings with that attitude that's going to shape how i deal with disagreement how i deal with opposing views because i see this person as somebody worth listening to you know i also want to appreciate the some of the perspectives that um, Audrey gave today, because again, I think gleaning towards, some of us may not look towards elections as identity. You know, we may just vote cavalier. Certain peoples have certain emphasis that they put on these elections. Some people are even to the other uh, side of the extreme. They don't even really believe they matter. All right, and so sometimes we forget about those other voices. Uh, but that whole conversation about identity and how people view themselves through the lenses of other bigger things to receive self-worth, I think is still such an important thing for us as we talk about potentially one of my good friends, Dr. Lee Lyons, starts talking about this heal the divide and how we strategically do that. I think it's also that conversation that people are different and, and we are different and our difference is important. And I think, um, again, self-identity and recognize how people attach themselves to things. One of the things I want to caution anyone about, I'll say, is to try to deduce somebody's identity because they do attach uh, to other things. Sometimes it's necessary, as people are evolving, learning themselves, growing in life, they will find something that they feel is stronger or more anchored while they are still evolving. And I think to respect people in their journey of thinking is a part of that healing of divide. And I don't think we have enough of that respecting where people's identity is right now. And that's what I'm learning to respect even more. Well, I think I want to thank everybody for being here. Audrey, thank you for joining us and bringing your perspective and, and your background to this conversation. And thanks to all the participants who joined us. There's a lot of questions that are really good. I'm sorry we couldn't get to them. I, I'd like, love to answer them. Feel free to email me if you want or any of us. I'm sure we'd love to continue the conversation or call me and have an appointment with me. I'm very, very happy to talk with anybody. I'll meet with anybody. So those are great questions. But I want to thank all the participants, everybody who joined us. Thanks for bearing with us as we're trying to adjust to this new format. It's a little strange. I know it's definitely strange for me. I'm in my office here by myself talking very loudly at a screen <laughs> and um, not seeing anybody's reactions to my jokes or anything. So it's a little different for me. But thank you all for joining us and being with us. Um, feel free to, like I said, ask questions. Thank you, Dr. Cashley, Dr. Uh, Dan Lashem, Pastor Joe. Thank you, Gary, Pastor Gary. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Village Square. Thank you all. Thanks. It was really nice meeting you guys. Really nice. Pleasure. Agreed. Pleasure. Thank you. Be Thanks. well. Everybody take care. Hi again. It's Vanessa here, your podcast host. I hope you enjoyed this God Squad program. And I'd like to offer a huge thank you to all the panelists for this thought-provoking program. I'm fascinated with the concept of perspective, just how much our own opinions and thoughts can change when we open ourselves up to new information or new viewpoints or new experiences. And I think at this time, when there are some really big forces telling us that we're so different from each other, that it's especially important for us to do our own work to fight that divisiveness. And that's why I'm personally so grateful to all the panelists today for helping me grow in my own perspective, and also for helping me look at the long view. I bet you know someone like me who could really benefit from this discussion please take just a minute to share this episode with them. It's really easy to do right from a text message or an email, or just let them know the name of this podcast, Village Squarecast. Please join us again in two weeks for another God Squad episode. That one will be facilitated by Rabbi Michael Shields of Temple Israel, and it's called What Happens When the Good News Club Isn't Good for Me or My Child? In that program, we hear from minority faith leaders about navigating the holiday season and the broader, predominantly Christian culture around them. And we consider how to embrace our diversity inside the public institutions we share. After that God Squad program coming up next, get ready for an exciting new season of programming from the Village Square. I just got a little preview of what's to come. And listen, you guys, I am already on the edge of my seat. I can't wait. 
great topics that are so on point with what's happening right now in the world around us. To see those programs when they come out, please subscribe to Village Squarecast in your favorite podcast app or on our website at tlh.villagesquare.us slash squarecast. That's also where you can find the show notes page for this episode with links to the articles mentioned in the program. To see all that's happening with Village Square, including our new season of programming, subscribe to our newsletter at tlh.villagesquare.us. And we'd be so grateful if you give us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate you listening to True Believers, the ascendant religion of our political extremes. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to The Village Squarecast. Cast.